Well, thank you all for, for coming out tonight. And uh, it's been a delightful visit here again at Southeastern and to, to meet uh, uh, friends again and, and uh, social media friends and so forth. Uh, it's just been terrific to be with you all. So thank you for, for having me. Um, I want to open with uh, a story about the Constitutional Convention. In 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, time dragged uh, as delegates bickered about representation in Congress. Virginia's James Madison insisted that the states with more people should possess more power. The small states knew that under the Articles of Confederation, uh, Amer America's existing national government at the time, all states had equal authority, regardless of population. So why should the small states give up that power under a new constitution? And the convention might have failed at this point. It really could have. Um, and if it had, the country would have continued to struggle under the inefficient, some said feckless, articles government. Or the new American nation might have simply disintegrated. At this critical moment, the octogenarian Ben Franklin took the convention floor. Calling for unity, he asked delegates to open sessions with prayer. As they were, quote, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, he queried, how has it happened that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? If they continue to ignore God, he said, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. This man, who called himself a deist, now insisted that delegates should ask God for wisdom. This was strange, because classic deists did not believe that God intervened in human affairs. Even more strange, he was one of the few delegates who thought that opening sessions with prayer was a good idea. Uh, his motion was tabled. So what kind of deist was this elderly man calling on America's greatest political minds to humble themselves before God? Franklin's work at the Constitutional Convention was the culmination of his spectacular career. He and George Washington, who was 26 years his junior, were not the architects of the Constitution. That role fell to James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and others. But Franklin and Washington were the two most famous Americans in 1787, and delegates looked on Franklin with respect and awe. The son of Boston Puritans had come a long way to get to that Philadelphia meeting hall. In the late spring of 1787, he exchanged letters with his beloved sister, Jane Mecom, who was an evangelical Christian, and the sibling who maintained the longest correspondence with and the deepest influence on Franklin. They reminisced about their humble beginnings as the children of a candlemaker. And Mecom had remained a person of humble means and relative anonymity while her brother's fame had skyrocketed. Ben told her that the course of his life struck him, quote, with wonder and fills me with humble thankfulness to that divine being who has graciously conducted my steps 
and prospered me in this strange land to a degree I could not rationally have expected and can by no means conceive myself to have merited. I beg the continuance of his favor. Chronic sickness made it difficult for Franklin to stand and speak at the convention, but he did offer occasional comments seeking to steer the delegates toward a successful conclusion. But early on, he also made a substantive speech arguing against paying a salary to the president or to members of the executive branch. He based this argument on his dim view of human nature and of politicians' temptations to personal aggrandizement. Quote, there are two passions which have a powerful influence in the affairs of men, he declared. These are ambition and avarice, the love of power and the love of men, money. Place before the eyes of such men a post of honor that shall at the same time be a place of profit, and they will move heaven and earth to obtain it. I will make no comments about current political affairs at this point. Um, such corruption had ruined British politics, Franklin said, and he wished to uncouple America's government from the profit motive. Citing Exodus 18.21, Franklin reminded delegates that the best rulers were men hating covetousness. If you turn politics into an avenue for personal gain, he said, only the most, quote, bold and violent men would want to enter. Lest delegates dismay his pay proposal as utopian, he cited examples of offices in which people served for little or no money. Uh, the arbiters of Quaker meetings, for instance, heard disputes that would have otherwise gone to secular courts. These duties were tedious, yet Quaker leaders performed them for no compensation. He also pointed to the virtuous Washington, who took no salary as the general of the Continental Army. Though, to be fair, he did submit expenses. Um, the convention, again, declined to support Franklin's proposal. But Franklin was participating in a bigger conversation that ran all through the constitutional debates. What kind of government could best account for the dangers inherent in human nature? Although Americans disagreed on the answer, they did not dispute the premise. Men were not angels, as Madison wrote in Federalist 51. They could not be trusted with unchecked power. Franklin joined a more controversial debate at the convention with his proposal for prayer on June 28th. He had lived a long time, he reminded delegates, and he had become ever more certain that God oversaw human affairs. Franklin was convinced that Providence had shepherded Americans through the revolutionary crisis. It was foolish not to call on God again. He reminded them of the early days of the war when the patriots had prayed often in that same room for God's help. At its best, faith inculcated public spiritedness and it suffocated selfishness. God had led them to the point where they could now frame the best possible government. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend, he asked? 
Citing Psalm 127, Franklin said that, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Furthermore, he declared, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Prideful strife would confound their work and turn their proceedings into a farce. This was the most remarkable religious episode of Ben Franklin's life. It was stunning, and not just because of the stage on which he was proposing prayer. Uh, as I said, Franklin was nearly alone among the delegates in wishing to bring prayer into the convention's proceedings. Connecticut's Roger Sherman, one of the most devout Christians in attendance, seconded Franklin's motion. And Virginia's Edmund Randolph proposed that they hire a pastor to preach on Independence Day, less than a week later. That minister could then open subsequent meetings with prayer. Beyond these three men, delegates seemed uninterested in arranging for prayers. Someone pointed out that they had not budgeted funds for a chaplain. If you're going to pray, you've got to have a chaplain, they think. Um, Alexander Hamilton worried that calling in a pastor might signal that the convention was becoming desperate. Um, and legend has it that, that Hamilton advised against calling in what he called foreign aid. Um, <laughs> so the motion fizzled, um, and Franklin was exasperated, jotting a note at the bottom of his speech that, quote, the convention, except three or four persons, thought prayers unnecessary, double exclamation points. But Franklin and the convention moved on. Um, perhaps the prayer speech did remind delegates of the need for compromise, even if it prompted no formal recourse to God. In an address two days after proposing prayer, Franklin explained the root of the tension between the large and small states. If representation was proportioned according to population, he said, the small states contend that their liberties will be in danger. If an equality of votes is to be put in its place, the large states say their money is in danger. Both sides were going to have to give up some demands to ensure a successful outcome. Drawing on earlier discussions regarding a two-house legislature, Franklin suggested that the convention create a House of Representatives with proportional representation and a Senate with equal representation between the states. And this became the Great Compromise, arguably the key settlement of the whole convention. In his final speech before the assembly, Franklin warned against dogmatism, uh, which might derail the Constitution. He saw this species of moralistic perfectionism both in religion and in politics. Most men, indeed, as well as most sects in religion, think themselves in possession of all truth, and that wherever others differ from them, it is so far error. Delegates, he thought, should be willing to support the Constitution, even if they did not regard it as perfect. No better frame of government would emerge from additional meetings. Franklin was, quote, not, so, not sure that it was not the best that they could do as it currently stood. 
The framers' enemies were longing to hear that their counsels had been confounded, quote, like those of the builders of Babel, phrase he, he brings up repeatedly at the convention. The convention needed to present a united front as the Constitution went out for ratification. Multiple forms of government could work well when administered by virtuous people anyway. And according to an oft-repeated story, when someone asked Franklin after the convention whether they had created a monarchy or a republic, he replied, a republic, if you can keep it. So, to return to our central question of Franklin and faith, who was this Franklin of Philadelphia, and what did he believe? In our mind's eye, the man seems ingenious, mischievous, and enigmatic. His journalistic, scientific, and political achievements are clear, but what of Ben Franklin's religion? Was Franklin defined by his youthful embrace of deism? his longtime friendship with George Whitfield, the most influential evangelist of the 18th century, his work with Thomas Jefferson on the Declaration of Independence and its invocations of the Creator and of nature and nature's God, or his solitary insistence on prayer at the convention. When you add Franklin's propensity for joking about serious matters, he becomes even more difficult to pin down. Regarding, regarding Franklin's chameleon-like religion, John Adams remarked that, quote, the Catholics thought him almost a Catholic. The Church of England claimed him as one of them. The Presbyterians thought him half a Presbyterian, and the Friends believed him a wet Quaker, <laughs> which is a Quaker who drinks. Uh, the key, I think, to understanding Franklin's ambivalent faith is the contrast between the skepticism of his adult life and the indelible imprint of his childhood Calvinism. The intense piety of his parents acted as a tether, restraining Franklin's skepticism. As a teenager, yes, he abandoned his parents' Puritan beliefs. But that same traditional faith kept him from getting too far away. He would stretch his moral and doctrinal tether to the breaking point by the end of a youthful sojourn he made to London. When he returned to Philadelphia in 1726, he resolved to conform more closely to his parents' ethical code. He steered away from extreme deism. Could he craft a Christianity centered on virtue rather than traditional doctrine and avoid alienating his parents at the same time? More importantly, could he convince the evangelical figures in his life, his sister Jane Mecom and the revivalist George Whitfield, that all was well with his soul? He would in time have more success convincing his sister than convincing George Whitfield. When he ran away from Boston as a teenager, Franklin also ran away from the city's Calvinism. But many factors, his Puritan tether, the pressure of relationships with Christian friends and family, disappointments with his own integrity, repeated illnesses, and the growing weight of political responsibility 
all kept him from going too, uh, too deep into the dark woods of radical skepticism. Franklin explored a number of religious opinions, and even at the end of his life, he remained noncommittal about all but a few points of belief. This elusiveness has made Franklin susceptible to many religious interpretations. Some devout Christians, beginning with the celebrated 19th century biographer Parson Mason Weems, uh, have found ways to mold Franklin into a faithful believer. Weems opined that, quote, Franklin's extraordinary benevolence and useful life were imbibed even unconsciously from the gospel. And there's something to this notion of Christianity's unconscious effect on Franklin. But Weems had to employ indirection because of Franklin's repeated insistence that he doubted key points of Christian doctrine. Other Christian writers could not overlook those skeptical statements. The English Baptist minister John Foster wrote in 1818 that, quote, love of the useful was the cornerstone of Franklin's thought and that Franklin, quote, substantially rejected Christianity. One of the most influential interpretations of Franklin's religion appeared in Max Weber's classic study, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, 1905. For Weber, Franklin was a near-perfect example of how Protestantism, drained of its doctrinal particularity, fostered modern capitalism. Uh, Franklin's The Way to Wealth, 1758, which distilled his best thoughts on frugality and industry, illustrated the spirit of capitalism, quote, in near classical purity, Faber wrote, and simultaneously offers the advantage of being detached from all direct connection to religious belief. For Weber, Franklin's virtues were no longer a matter of just obeying God. Virtue was also useful and profitable. Franklin, admonished by his, quote, strict Calvinist father about diligence in one's calling, presented money-making and success as products of, quote, competence and proficiency in, vo in a vocation. Weber's Franklin grew up in an intense Calvinist setting, but redirected that zeal toward virtuous labor in a profession, namely printing. There's a lot to recommend in Weber's portrait. As an adult, Franklin touted ethical responsibility, industriousness, and benevolence, even as he jettisoned Christian orthodoxy. Many recent scholars have taken Franklin at his word by describing him as a deist. Others have called him everything from a, quote, stone-cold atheist, which is ridiculous, he was not an atheist, uh, to a man who believed in the, quote, active God of the Israelites, the prophets, and the apostles. Deism stands at the center of this interpretive continuum from atheist to devout Christian. But other than indicating skepticism about traditional Christian doctrine, deism could mean many things in the 18th century. Um, and the beliefs of different deists did not always sync up. Some deists said they believed in the Bible as originally written. 
Others doubted the Bible's reliability. Some deists believed that God remained involved with life on earth. Others saw God, yes, as a cosmic watchmaker, winding up the world and then letting it run on its own. Deism meant different things to Franklin over the course of his long career, too, and he didn't always explain those variant meanings. So I'm not opposed to calling Franklin a deist, and, and I do so in my book, but deist does not quite capture the trajectory or texture of Franklin's beliefs. I gratefully draw from aspects of Weber's analysis and those of many other commentators on Franklin's religion. But adding to the themes of Franklin's skepticism and ambivalence, my book shows how much Franklin's personal experiences, personal experiences shaped his religious beliefs. Like Abraham Lincoln, Franklin's early exposure to skeptical writings undermined his confidence in Christianity. But books alone could not erase Franklin's childhood immersion in Puritan piety. His ongoing relationships with evangelical Christians made it difficult for him to jettison the vocabulary and precepts of traditional faith altogether. Although his view of providence vacillated, the weight of the American Revolution fostered a renewed belief in him that history had divine purposes. Franklin and Lincoln, both self-educated sons of Calvinist parents, both of whom had much of the Bible committed to memory, gravitated toward a revitalized sense of God's role over history as war and constitutional crises racked America in the 1770s for Franklin and the 1860s for Lincoln. Neither man's beliefs could escape the influence of their daily relationships and stressful experiences. It's difficult to overstate just how deep of an imprint that the Bible itself made on Franklin's mind or on Lincoln's mind or on either man's way of speaking and writing. You know that even many professing Christians today are unfamiliar with large portions of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, many professing Christians today don't know much about current theological debates. Franklin knew the Bible backward and forward. Biblical phrases are ubiquitous in Franklin's vast body of, of writings. The Bible framed the way that he spoke and he thought. Uh, even as he embraced religious doubts, the King James Bible colored his ideas about morality, human nature, and the purpose of life. It served as his most common source of similes and anecdotes. He even enjoyed preying on friends' ignorance of Scripture in order, in order to play jokes on them. Franklin once explained the Bible-saturated environment in which he grew up in a letter to the Reverend Samuel Cooper of Boston. Um, Franklin was arranging for the publication of 
one of Cooper's sermons in, in Europe. But Franklin needed to annotate the sermon with biblical references. Quote, it was not necessary in New England, where everybody reads the Bible, and is acquainted with scripture phrases, that you should note the text from which you took them, he told Cooper. But I have observed in England as well as in France that verses and expressions taken from the sacred writings and not known to be such appear very strange and awkward to some readers. And I shall therefore, in my edition, take the liberty of marking the quoted texts in the margin. Franklin did not need Cooper to insert the Bible references. He knew them by heart. As a child of the Puritans, Franklin instantly recognized Bible phrases when he read them, even from obscure portions of the text. So the shadow of scripture loomed over his long life. Franklin then was a pioneer of a distinctly American kind of religion. I'm tempted to call it an early form of, quote, Sheilaism, Sheilaism, which is the individualist religion described in Robert Bella's celebrated book, Habits of the Heart, 1985. And in Bella's Sheilaism, this is obviously derived from a woman that he interviewed about, about her beliefs, uh, the individual conscience is the standard for religious truth, not any external authority. But I think Franklin's protege, Tom Paine, might be a better choice as a founder of Sheilaism, uh, with Paine's declaration in the Age of Reason, 1794, that, quote, my own mind is my own church. Now, I, I think Franklin was too tethered to external Christian ethics and institutions to be a forerunner of Sheilaism. Instead, Franklin was the pioneer of a related kind of faith what I call doctrineless, moralized Christianity. Doctrineless, moralized Christianity. Franklin was an experimenter at heart, and he tinkered with a novel form of Christianity, one where virtually all beliefs became non-essential. The Puritans of his childhood focused too much on doctrine, he thought. And he wearied of Philadelphia Presbyterians' zeal for expelling the heterodox and their lack of interest, as he perceived it, in the mandates of love and charity. For Franklin, Christianity remained a preeminent resource for virtue. But he had no exclusive attachment to Christianity as a religious system or a source of salvation. In Franklin's estimation, we cannot know for certain whether doctrines such as God's Trinitarian nature are true. But we do know that Christians and the devout of all faiths are called to benevolence and selfless service. God calls us all to do good. So Franklin believed the doctrinal strife is not only futile, but it undermines the mandate of virtue. If you haven't noticed, uh, doctrinless Christianity and doctrinless religion is utterly pervasive in America today. We see it most commonly in major media figures of self-help, spirituality, and success. 
such as Oprah Winfrey, um, Houston megachurch pastor Joel Osteen, and the late Stephen Covey, uh, author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Although they might differ on specifics, the common message of these authors and their countless followers is that a life of love, service, and significance is the best life of all. God will help you live that kind of life, but your faith should be empowering and tolerant rather than fractious and nitpicking. Sociologist Christian Smith says that these characteristically American beliefs amount to, quote, moralistic therapeutic deism. Many of its most prominent exponents, such as Osteen, live out their faith in particular congregations and traditions. Even Oprah Winfrey has testified that, quote, I am a Christian. That is my faith. However, she says, I'm not asking you to be a Christian. If you want to be one, I can show you how. But it is not required. Doctrinalist Christians agree that people may need to believe in doctrines. Our personal understanding of God can help us. We may need particular beliefs to enable our best life now, in Joel Osteen's phrase. But ultimately, the focus of doctrinalist Christianity is a life of good works, resiliency, and generosity now. Faith helps us to embody disciplined benevolent success in this life. That's what God wants for us, the doctrinalist Christians say. And it's easy, I think, to dismiss this kind of pop faith as peddled by wealthy media superstars. But it is America's most common code of spirituality. And for Ben Franklin, doctrinalist moralized Christianity was serious intellectual business. Uh, born out of contemporary religious debates and dissatisfaction with his family's Puritanism. Like many religious skeptics in the 18th century, Franklin was weary of 300 years of fighting over the implications of the Protestant Reformation. Much of that fighting concerned church authority and particular doctrines. Franklin grew up in a world of intractable conflict between Catholics and Protestants and between and within Protestant denominations themselves. What good was Christianity, he thought, if it precipitated pettiness, persecution, and violence? Unlike some self-help celebrities today, Franklin and his cohort of European and American deists reckoned that in promoting a doctrinless, ethics-focused Christianity, they were redeeming Christianity itself. How successful that redemptive effort was, you all will have to decide for yourselves. Could you really have a non-exclusive, doctrinally minimal, morality-centered Christianity? Or did the effort fatally compromise Christianity itself? Well, Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and many of their friends in America, Britain, and France wanted to give it a try. Thirteen years after Franklin's death, Jefferson wrote that he considered himself, quote, a Christian in the only sense Jesus wished anyone to be. He admired Jesus' moral doctrines as, quote, more pure and perfect than any other philosophers. 
But to Jefferson, Jesus' excellence was only human. Jesus never claimed to be anything else, Jefferson said. Christians, including authors of the New Testament books, imposed the claims of divinity on Jesus after he had gone to his grave and not risen again, Jefferson concluded. Well, Franklin didn't go as far as Jefferson. Uh, Franklin preferred not to dogmatize one way or the other on matters such as Jesus' divinity. In a classic tension that still marks American religion, Franklin's devout parents, his sister Jane, and George Whitfield, among others, all found doctrinalist Christianity dangerous. Yes, they agreed that morality was essential. And yes, it was better not to fight over minor theological issues. But true belief in Jesus was necessary for salvation. To the Puritans and Evangelicals, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Doubting that truth put your soul in jeopardy. Jesus had made the way for sinners to be saved through his atoning death and miraculous resurrection. It wasn't enough to emulate Jesus' life, as as important as that was. More than a moral teacher, Jesus was Lord and Savior. Honoring Christ required belief in doctrinal truth. Franklin was not so sure. Perhaps the Puritans and Presbyterians of his youth had gotten it wrong. Perhaps he was the one who was getting back to Jesus' core teaching, he thought. But he was sure that doing good was the grand point. For most of his life, Franklin had traditional Christian inquirers, especially family and friends, who asked him about the state of his beliefs and the state of his soul. Among the most consistent of those inquirers were Jane Mecom and George Whitfield. In the last few weeks of, his, of Franklin's life, one more inquirer came on the stage. Franklin had known Yale College President Ezra Stiles ever since Yale granted Franklin an honorary master's degree in 1753. Stiles, a Congregationalist minister and broad-minded Calvinist, realized that Franklin was near death. He wrote to him, he said, You have merited and received all the honors of the Republic of Letters and are going to a world where all sublunary glories will be lost in the glories of immortality. But Stiles paused. Would it be impertinent for him to ask about his belief in Christ? Quote, as much as I know of Dr. Franklin, Stiles confessed, I have not an idea of his religious sentiments. I wish to know the opinion of my venerable friend concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Stiles adored Franklin, but still he wished Franklin would have clear title to, quote, that happy immortality which I believe Jesus alone has purchased for the virtuous and truly good of every religious denomination. Franklin respected Stiles, and so five weeks before Franklin's death, he penned a response, which he asked Stiles to keep confidential. And apparently he didn't, since we're here talking about it. (laughs) You desire to know something of my religion. It is the first time I have been questioned upon it, Franklin wrote. 
Which is untrue. I don't know why he said that. Um, his, his parents, uh, Jane Mecom, George Whitfield, and others had been asking about him about it all his life. Anyway, he continued, I do not take your curiosity amiss and shall endeavor in a few words to gratify it, he wrote. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we can render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life respecting its conduct in this. Thus, at the end of his life, Franklin was a providentialist, a believer in the duties of worship and benevolence, and he expected God would rule in a final judgment. Then he continued, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But he still had doubts. Quote, I, I apprehend Christ's teachings have received various corrupting changes, and I have some doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question, I, it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it. Franklin never doubted how admirable Christ's moral teachings were. He just did not know if he could accept the New Testament's doctrinal claims about Jesus. Turning, as usual, to a joke, um, Franklin said that he thought, quote, It needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. <laughs> In other words, he's going to die soon. He'll find out soon enough. In spite of his qualms about traditional Christianity, he said that he, quote, saw no harm, however, in its being believed, if that belief has the good consequence, as it probably has, of making his doctrines more respected and better observed. For Franklin, the point was never just belief, but virtuous action. Quote, I shall only add respecting myself, he concluded his letter to Stiles, that having experienced the goodness of that being and conducting me prosperously through a long life, I have no doubt of its continuance in the next, though without the smallest conceit of meriting such goodness. God had always been good to him, he said, and Franklin saw no reason to think that God's kindness would stop when he died. And die he did, on April 17, 1790. And he left the enigma of his faith unresolved. But in his code of doctrinalist, moralized Christianity, he became the founding father of perhaps the most pervasive kind of spirituality in the Western world today.